אתם מאזינים לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשרס, רדיו קול רמה, 102.3 FM. This is Parsha Talk, I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet in Highland Park, New Jersey, Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation, Anshay Amet, and joining me are my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chester, Salman Sheikh Day School of Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed, New York City, we are... recording this uh it's day 19 of the war it's uh we're we're recording this on the Wednesday before Shabbat Lech Lecha and of course uh as things unfold in Israel we are so deeply mindful of our friends and family in Israel who are going through what is a very very difficult challenging time uh and all of us in You know who are one or two levels of orbit around our Israeli family and friends uh, we are thinking about them constantly and trying to do whatever we can here to support and to put our voices out there and to be advocates for Israel in every way possible um, and on that note we're wanting to give a big shout out to our friend Mitch Mernick who's the producer of producer emeritus of Parsha talk he's not emeritus he's he's, he's, the a, one. he's still working he's still working but his son is uh has been called up Ben Ben Mernick uh he's in uh, Sherion he's in a tank core and uh we're thinking of you Mitch we're thinking of your family and we're thinking of Ben so we're sending a lot of Hizuk to uh, to you and to our entire Ramamishbacha and to our congregations and And to extension by extension everybody uh, you know this is uh, all, our, all our friends all our friends and family and I've got some some kids in in my shul um, Shulman and and uh, Elon backrack Ben boxer who's a little bit older now he's he's in the reserve uh Elon's also in the reserve and other folks um, and many many friends and and such a dark time and you We fear that it's going to get darker so we just send in all our love you know that the prayer that uh we've been saying I, I got from the current Sidor but a lot of it's been in other versions too you know um, our brothers who are brothers and sisters who are in captivity and pain that that God should you know they'll break their shackles we uh, Yetzilem, save them from their crises and the line that just gets me every time is uh, is uh, like to bring them back to the loving embrace of their family just to think about those little babies kept captive and it's just we have, uh, we have friends of people in our community uh, who are who are hostages uh, so it's very very close to us So I will mention one of my former students Omar Nutra who is a hostage and another student Ira Kohler who is a Khayal Bodad a lone soldier uh, on active duty in the IDF. Yeah, I have my show I have uh, Rafael and Ayala Jones who are active uh, people and of course Nama's Nama's boyfriend Jacob Jacob Zucker is uh, been called up and uh, he's somewhere uh, in an undisclosed location who knows where you know moving from base to base at this point. So we're thinking about and we're we're talking about the Parsha we're talking about you know in a way the the study of Torah is is a a little provides some Nikhama for us a little bit of comfort for us uh, notwithstanding the fact that you know we're thinking about these big events these big world events 
in the context of, you know, what's going on and how they filter in, I suppose, in in our reading of the Parsha. So maybe this is a good place to start with Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha is a, a world-changing event. <laughs> when you put it in the perspective of, you know, here here is a call to an individual who we don't know a lot about, um, and God basically says, Lech Lecha, go, and the argument is that this changes human history. So uh, we can start with that. We could start with the idea that this is a, a call that severs his connections to everything that orients him and defines him, his land, his birthplace, his father's household, and going to a land that God will show him. Uh, and so maybe the question I want to ask is, is this is a challenge to him, and we frame the Abraham story as a series of challenges. Can we just ask a question about all of these experiences as challenges, or what is going on here? Why Abraham? What's what's the the what is he experiencing here, and and why would the tradition see this as a series of challenges. We want to take that. At one level, you know, religion works best in the gap between, you know, reality, prosaic reality, all the stuff that's difficult about the world, and an aspiration to transcend it. Like religion works when it points us, you know, towards something wiser or better or more spiritual or more ethical. Um, and so, at some level, if a religious story were simply, you know, and God said, do this, and everyone did it, and it wasn't hard, um, then then it wouldn't have that, that disjunctive quality that good religion has. Um, instead, it's like religion, if it's going to work, is going to say, hey, listen, we're actually asking something of you that is a little dissonant with the regular life. Um, we're asking you to be somewhat countercultural to your society because your society is always going to be like greedy and and cruel, and some people are going to stomp on other people. And we're asking you to like uh, go outside of the rubric of your everyday society with all of its failings, and that's going to be hard, and it's not going to be the easy route. Uh, and and that to me is is connected. Um, to a religious desire to always have a little disjunction from the way things are and point towards the way things might be. So, you know, I mean, the, the rabbis, of course, in what must be one of the most, you know, four or five famous passages in rabbinic literature, you know, why Abraham? Well, Abraham broke the idols. His society was a stupid society, and and they thought stupid things, and they didn't have much insight. Um, about about the superficiality of their religion, and Abraham was great. He broke those idols and made them think differently, and that made him have to be countercultural, and that made him have to leave a society. But it's when you leave something behind that you can build something new. Some something like that, perhaps. Perhaps Barry, you have any thoughts on on this? So I think that what distinguishes Abraham for me is that he not only heard God's voice, but he followed it. I have to imagine that God might have tried reaching more than one person, but only Abraham in our tradition answers the call. 
And, you know, the narrative arc of both the Torah and the Bible is intriguing because Lech Lecha makes Abraham leave Babylonia. The Jews will later go back to Babylonia, but not as the children of Abraham, as it were. And Abraham in our Parsha will find himself in Egypt, which is the other great cultural uh, place in the ancient Near East. And the relationship between the Hebrews and the Israelites in Egypt is a, a conflicted one, not only in the Parsha, but throughout the Torah. Um, with the uh, enslavement in Egypt and the Exodus, and then later in the historical books where Egypt is going to be a main power to be dealt with. And what we have in Avraham is someone who knows to leave Babylonia and knows that Egypt is overshooting his mark. And so he has to find himself in Eretz Canaan, the land that the Torah twice mentions and our Parsha is populated with other peoples who are too different to become one of. I would like to, to uh, try and understand the, the challenge that God gives Abraham. And, and uh, I, want, I guess I'm picking up on what Jeremy said, which is, you know, God asks him, you know, to, to do something and, and he obeys it. Um, I'm wondering whether or not he actually obeys it the way that God wants, because Lech Lecha sounds to me very singular. I may have, we may have talked about this in the past, but he he's coming out of a context. The context is there is already some movement. We saw that at the end of last week's Parsha. The family of Terach, that's Abraham's family, uh, which consists of Terach. We don't know who Mrs. Terach is. There's his brother Nahor and his brother Haran, and Haran has a son Lot, and Haran dies. Okay, so so we have an unusual situation in this family, which is that there are three sons in this family and a patriarch in this family, and it seems that that following from the pattern already that exists with Terach, Terach who has three sons Shem, Ham, and Yafet, and each of those sons populates a certain continent. So maybe there's a, a kind of region that we're looking for. And in fact, Nahor populates the region that is, you know, Lebanon, Syria. Uh, and uh, maybe Lot or maybe Haran was supposed to populate what is today Jordan. And Abraham was to populate the land of Canaan. And so what you have, though, is this rupture because a son dies, Haran dies, and Lot is absorbed into the family of Abraham. And when God says, Lech Lecha, and Lech Lecha, Me'artzecha, Me'meladetcha, Me'bet Avicha, go from your land, your birthplace, your father's household, I will make you a great nation. E'escha le'goi gadol, cha, I will bless you. Va'agadla she'mecha, I will make your name great. Ve'heye bracha, and you will be a blessing. And goes on, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and through you all of the people of the earth will be blessed. So that's no, you, know, you got that last I <laughs> the, the last line vitiates your point a little bit. Which is if you if you want to say, as we've discussed this in the past, yeah. that that Abraham is really supposed to leave behind something. 
Yes. And and maybe makes a mistake by trying to bring the Haran branch of the family through Lot into into his his journey. But it would seem to me that all the families of the world should be blessed through you. Like why would he be punished or what would be wrong? What would be the what would be the misfire in saying yeah, my nephew, he should be part of this too. Because that's that's why isn't that under the rubric of all the families of the world be blessed through you? Right. So I'm saying I'm thinking that possibly this means you're gonna have a new family, and Abraham actually is very loyal to his old family. He's he's loyal to the wife that is barren, that can't give him children. We know that already from the end of last week's parsha, and he's loyal to his deceased brother's son. And so so what you have here is a challenge. The challenge to Abraham is that you are to become this, but but how are you to navigate your responsibilities to your family of origin uh, together with the challenge of the heroic journey? The heroic journey so, is usually a journey of the individual, not of a family. And here, he really imprints an, a, a different idea here. I'm taking my family with me. So it may be that originally Lot was seen to be the proper heir of Abraham because he does have the family connection, and Sarah is barren, which is mentioned last week. and But Lo proves unworthy, and he is tested as well. He is given circumstances that are fraught with difficulty, and I think we could say, certainly with the advantage of hindsight, he doesn't quite measure up. He's not the kind of person that we would choose to be part of our family, although I imagine Every family has someone like Lot in it. <laughs> um, so that leaves Abraham with Sarah. And you know, one way I think to understand this Parsha in particular is a meditation on what what really constitutes a family. Yeah. And it's not, it's always more complicated than we think, even though I think everyone comes from a complicated family. Right. That's one of the Part of the wisdom that comes with age is you realize that all families are complicated. And here we we have that working out. You know, that's what brings Avraham to Egypt and that difficult family dynamic. And later Avraham will go rescue his nephew Lot, who has been taken captive by the locals. And you know, domestic Eliezer will be offered as another heir apparent, and Ishmael before Isaac in a week or two will become the true heir of Abraham. Right. So the, uh, the, so uh, the just the, the one the one the one piece of uh, one thing that that I think really works well for your for your point is the Agadla Shemecha. Yeah, I'll make your name great. Lot, by the way, in in the Sdom Amora episode, does not come off that badly. He actually, I mean, he comes off. He says one of the worst things in the whole Torah. He offers to to give the marauding, you know, to bring to to throw his own virgin daughters to the to the gang rape mob, which is not nice. Um, but he's doing his best to protect the angels also, and he ultimately does warrant God's rescue from Sdom. But what happens, of course, in the end, is that that he ends up you know, in an incestual nightmare, having children with his daughters, and their names are Moab and Ammon. And so their names, those are Israel's rival people. And 
<laughs> their their names are the opposite of Agad Lashemach. I'll make your name great, but Lot he goes down, and his name is actually mud. Interesting, fascinating. You know, while we're on on parsing some of these things, I'm always uh, I've been saying this. Or you know, this is this is the line for anti-Semitism, which is in abundance right now. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Um, it never fails to be validated in front of me that people who curse Jews, the people who hate Jews, in the end, I think are cursed people. I, I have one illustration of this that that I've, I've been meaning to use in a sermon. I'm going to blow it now and use it here, which is... Count. Okay, so... From time to time, I enjoy a, a, a bike ride. And where I go um, nearby, um, between uh, in, in uh, it's uh, in, you know, outside of Princeton and, and all the way down to New Brunswick, um, there's a place that is that used to be a camp. And um, I looked this up on the internet through some kind of com- you know coincidence. I discovered that in the 30s, there was a Nazi camp in New Jersey, and it was located right near Rocky Hill, New Jersey, or or, uh, south of Rocky Hill, New Jersey. And that place is desolate today. It's just overrun. It's the most disgusting piece of land that you could ever see. It's a swamp full of dead trees and abandoned buildings and it's disgusting. And every time I drive by that, I say this verse. That, that because this was a Nazi camp right here, uh, it the, the even the land itself still remains cursed because of it. Okay. The ground is cursed because of you. I mean, I have to say, you know, anti-Semitism. You was born in 1966. I was I was born in 1966, and of course, I have seen some evidences of it. But basically, in American Jew in American Jewish life, you know, our biggest problem is actually not anti-Semitism. It hasn't been anti-Semitism. It's been until the- now. Let Let's be until honest. Now, no, until now. Until now, it has not been. Our biggest problem is actually that people loved us a little too much and wanted to marry us and. And and that posed a different set of problems, uh, but boy, it is just reared with a vengeance. So the Jews are liars, and they hold too much power, and and there's something secret and sneaky and greedy and vindictive about them, and they they just hate everybody who's not in the group. Would that our group consciousness was so strong that we hated people who were not. I just it is just devastating these these weeks. Uh, and then I, I must say, with a little bit of small humor, uh, one of my members is a is a is a senior partner at Davis Polk. The big I haven't said this to him, but uh, he's at one of the big law firms. He's, a, he's he is one of the senior partners, and and they Davis Polk like rescinded some job offers to people who had signed the, the anti-Israel stuff. And I thought to myself, well, that's a good way to. To convince people that we don't have a power, <laughs> we're not a cabal of power to take economic punishment to the people we don't like. Um, but this, we're, we're in a difficult spot. We're in a frightening, difficult spot full of a lot of rage and hatred. Yes, and um, and 
uh, sorry to say, I don't think it's going to get better very much soon. Uh, I think it's going to get worse. I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my my watch now, and and uh, in about uh, 15 minutes, there's going to be a um, a, r- a rally, a silent rally at Rutgers, not far from me, where they're going to read the names of the abducted, um, you know, Israelis, and um, I'm I'm scared for those kids, uh, and and because they're facing such hostility and and anger from the the pro Hamas, uh, pro Palestinian uh, students that that have no shame in embracing this lethal genocidal ideology, and it it's it's absolutely horrific. And we're living right with it. We're living very close to it. You're Jeremy. You're 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 living, you know, in New York City, and you see it in a in a in a very difficult way or a different way. Certainly, you know. I just I, today I got a, a note about Columbia University, and I've been watching things in Columbia University and and seeing the things that go on on the campuses uh, is is quite scary. It's horrific, actually, and um, we're in for we're in for a lot of challenges. And I go back to this verse, which is, you know, all of these universities that that are making it very difficult for Jews to feel safe. In the end, those universities, as wealthy as they are, as elite as they are, they will be cursed institutions. I have absolute faith in that line, Mikalel or those who curse you will be cursed. I've seen it. The evidence of that is not only in that little parcel of land on my bike trip, but it's it's everywhere. If you visit Poland today, you go past you know places where the land is cursed because the people curse. But when? Them. When? <laughs> Ad matai. matai, you know. Okay, so challenges that that Abraham faces. Let's go to the second challenge, which is a really fascinating challenge. He gets into the land. He goes from place to place. He puts an altar here. He puts an altar there. You know, I, I get the sense that he, he he so wants to reach out to God. You know, we don't we don't get this. We don't. It doesn't tell us what he does at each of these altars. I I actually wonder whether or not. He he makes offerings at these offerings. It really doesn't tell us. It just says Vayiven, Vayiven Mizbeach, Vayiven Shamizbeach. He builds an altar, and he, in other words, he establishes certain facts on the ground, and then chapter twelve, verse ten, Vayira Avaretz. Another disjunction. There is a famine in the land, so stop there, and then you are in real time with Abraham, and you have decisions to make. Okay. It seems what are the what what's in front of you? There is a famine in the land. You are a shepherd, okay? You are you, your sustenance is, I guess, your sheep, or maybe not. And there's a famine in the land. So what do you do? What's 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 what are the challenges for you? You have God has told you to be in this land, to be in this place where I will show you, and now you can't live there. So I'll read the rest of it. He goes to Egypt to dwell there, dwell permanently, dwell temporarily, because the famine was so deep, so heavy. And then we get we get the next episode with with our, with his wife. We'll talk about that in a second if we have time, obviously. But but what are what's what are the choices available to him? 
Go ahead, Barry. Tell me. Well, uh, the media choice, I think, as we discussed before recording, is that Abraham's vital concern is survival. And therefore, he must go where the food is, and that takes him down to Egypt. But I think, you know, in, listening to you parse the verses, I think when Abraham goes to Egypt, it's not clear when he's coming back. And we sometimes forget that in the black and white of the Torah, there's a lot of gray where answers are not so clear for the characters that inhabit the Bible. So when Abraham goes, I don't know that he sees his way to the end. He's just going to deal with the immediate problem. And his immediate problem is food. And also, once he's in Egypt, in a strange country, to preserve his family unit as best he is able. But he, but he is he is over seventy five years old at this point, and and uh, you know I, I'm assuming that he has a lot of strength that, that you know he lives till one hundred and seventy five. He he's got a good hundred years left in him, so he's not even halfway through his life at this point. But he doesn't know that, uh, so he is taking I guess some risks, certainly some risks with his physical life because he's really saying, do I do I wait out the famine here and possibly die, but fulfill God's word to me? Or do I at least give a chance to survival with more probability of survival by going to, to a place where there's food, notwithstanding the fact that, that other kinds of eventualities may happen, including, and here we'll go into the next little part of it, which is, okay. I have a beautiful wife, and who knows? But Jeremy, go ahead. Let me just, let me just say that I, I tend to find the the stories of the Chumash in particular, especially here in Breshid, um, and, and even through the Tanakh in general, I, I tend to find their symbolic power much greater than their realistic power. Like, if you read a novel, you know, you open up a novel, and characters do stuff that makes no sense, it's probably not a very good contemporary novel by, you know, whatever contemporary novelist you want to you name. But the Torah is not telling... A story that's after verisimilitude, like, man, what are we doing? We've got hunger problems. We got we got a land of Israel that is prone to famine because it's a rain-based, um, rain-based agriculture. Agriculture. It's got the rain's got to fall. The water's got to penetrate the earth. It's got to come back out of springs. And Israel is located. The land of Israel is located. And this is the story throughout the whole Tanakh. Between. To the northeast is Mesopotamia, to the southwest is Egypt, these great river economies, river agricultures, and we are always going to be drawn, travel between them, in exile in one or the other of the places, making alliances, um, trying to trying to kiss up to Egypt, to kiss up to the Babylonians, the various Mesopotamians. I think the Torah is, is not telling us a story so much about this guy, Abraham ben Terach, and he's got the wife, and he's got a nephew. It, it's telling us a story about the symbolic exemplar of the Jewish people who we will always be making, as long as we live, a shuttle between exile and homecoming, uh, between the big empires and the small. And so I, I feel like the story of Lech Lecha, in the beginning, at the, the very, very end of last last week's Parsha in Genesis 11, Abraham's own father leaving Ur Qasdim in, in Iraq, Going up to Haran in contemporary, it's actually contemporary Turkey. It's just north of contemporary 
the Syrian border is like effectively Syria. Making that journey from the Mesopotamian place and arriving in the in the promised land, but not being able to stay there and having to go to that other great country. And that's the story in which we're going to keep returning to it over and over and over again. So uh, that's what I think is really going on here. Well, I, I love the fact that we're on such opposite parts of the spectrum here, because I want so I want so much to be. I, I you probably do also want to be inside the story, but I I want to feel or face the choices that he is facing, and and because there the degree of empathy that it's being demanded here of of me a reader here is saying well. What do you do? God, God just promised you that you're going to be everything. You're going to people will bless you through you. And like you're going to die. <laughs> you're going to die. And so do you trust God or do you do you haul yourself out to just to, to get your next piece of bread, to get something to eat? You know, and what's the bargaining? What's what what's the conversation that is going to go on between Abraham and Sarah, you know, in in this in this moment? Do you know and, and do they do they have a partnership in their marriage? Do they have the the ability to see? Look, we have a mission. There's something important, or we need to survive. And well, what's how would you write that script? I mean, well, I, yeah, to that point, what we have is a monologue, not a dialogue. In, indeed, and so I, I, Abraham says, "You're beautiful. Tell them you're my sister, so I shall live." So let's. I, I taught this uh, text this week, and and very interesting comment was. That at this point, and it's arguable if that's sustained throughout the marriage, but at this point there is a sense of partnership because the, Sarah agrees. Sarai agrees here. She is. I mean, it doesn't say she agrees, but but she she doesn't disagree. She doesn't protest. Well, because she also has a tough choice. She does not have an alternative. Right. So, do we see that as uh, a marriage of? shared destiny and shared partnership or a marriage of conflict right? I, I would I, you know i would uh i'm gonna i'm gonna you know double down on, on what i was saying before and i think that this is a story about power i mean for from sarah's perspective a story about powerlessness uh which is also part of the jewish experience in its shuttling between exile and homecoming and okay, on, let me just throw an asterisk on the question of adultery and and you know the sanctity of a marital bond. Of course, that's a big piece of Judaism. Um, later on in chapter twenty, when the story is repeated in the Philistine king of Avimelech, the, the Torah goes out of its way to say that God simply physically prevented uh, Avimelech from being able to to do anything untoward. Um, which does not say this here. I, I think the implication is that there is sex between Sarah and Pharaoh. And that powerlessness and exploitation, I think that's what we're going for. And I and I don't know, you know, Sarah didn't protest. I don't know if she had any power to protest. Um, there, I was just throwing one other Bible story way down later on. Um, I forget this is Merab or Michal, although the two of them kind of run together, that when David is now in rebellion against Shaul, Shaul takes one of his daughters, who are David's wives, and gives them to another to another man. So it seems like, while of course adultery and and some sort of sanctity of the marital relationship is supposed to 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 be, 
it seems like the other Bible stories also have a precedent that powerful men do what they want and and they become you know somebody else's wife now. Um, and so I, I feel like the story that is being told about Sarah is not a, that is a partnership, but that she is victimized and exploited. And she doesn't have anything to do about it. I, I just I don't want to come in total defense of Sarah, but I want to say that what happens, I think, was unanticipated. I don't think I don't think Abraham really thought this through at all. And and we have a, a, a cascade of unpredicted events, which include the fact that he himself really doesn't understand how beautiful she is. He himself doesn't understand the consequences of that in the foreign country. And he doesn't understand the power structures in that country where people who want to curry favor with Pharaoh are going to kind of see this beautiful woman and say, hmm, you know, maybe maybe in order to get favor with Pharaoh, we will, we will you know, pass on this information. Abraham may have just simply wanted to you know, keep the the idea that Pharaoh was that that Sarah was his sister, in order to to negotiate with people, in order to prolong, in order to buy some time, in order to be able to figure out strategies of survival. Here, that's exactly what he says. And it's not because I want it good. It means I want to survive. I need. We need to survive, and this is the only way that we can survive. And the and his plans for survival really don't include the consequence of she was that beautiful that uh, Pharaoh himself would want her. And so from that, we have the real crisis. Well, I think what heightens the crisis is that God does not appear where we think he should. Yeah, okay. So God leads Abraham to Canaan, but Abraham finds he must leave Canaan and God doesn't enter into the conversation. Well, first time okay. that God enters into the conversation is when he afflicts Pharaoh. Yeah, there's no conversation there. It's simply by God. And, you know, which raises the question, why is God not protecting Abraham? Why is Abraham left to fend for himself? Because he's left. And I think that the answer is that that's almost always the case. Indeed. God is never there quite when we want God to be there. God just shows up at God's will. So, so that that's what it means to have faith and trust. You know, God is not not at every little interstitial moment of the story. And I think this is what makes Abraham quite extraordinary, is that even with the one or two revelations, one or two, you know, statements he hears, he's willing to he's willing to do everything. I think that's what makes Abraham Great. Right. But what we're left with at the end of his life, as we follow all the challenges, including the last one, which we'll get to next week, the Akedah, after which God will not talk to Abraham again, is this idea of whether or not God gave Abraham enough. Yeah. So many, so many interesting questions. We haven't even God set, him up, set him up to succeed or set him up to fail. Oh, yeah. But he's but his name will be blessed. And through no, I mean, I, I do feel that there's there's a Gemara, which is a small, I'll say one small comment about Jewish practice. Um, there's a there's a wonderful Gemara that says, you know, uh, or, uh, you'll be a blessing, 
God says the the Talmud in, in Tractate Brachot interprets that to mean, um, you know, Isaac and Jacob are also great. It's Elohe Abraham, Elohe Yitzchak, Elohe Yaakov. But you will be the blessing. It's Magen Abraham. The first blessing of the Amidah is going to conclude. We're going to mention all three of you, but you're the capstone blessing. And in my community, lots of conservative communities, we've added the Imahot, the, the matriarchs of the Amidah. And we say, Elohe Abraham, Elohe Yitzchak, Elohe Yaakov, Elohe Sarah, Elohe Rukal, Elohe We say, you know, the God of the matriarchs as well. And then we tend to close off the blessing it's in the Sim Shalom prayer books and the Lev Shalom prayer books. Baruch Hashem, Magen Abraham Ufoked Sarah blesses the, the shield of Abraham and the and the one who remembers Sarah. And it's fine. I, I like adding the Imahot in the body of the bracha, but I actually like I personally close off the bracha if I'm not davening from the Amud, not not leading prayers. I, w- I want the people to be able to follow along in the book. I don't really want to deviate from the book. I think that's confusing to people. Um. So, but my own private Amidah, I still just say Magen Abraham because there's something about what Abraham has to do that is different than what all the other patriarchs and matriarchs. There's not a, there's no knock against Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah. Also excellent patriarchs. They're, they're just A-plus patriarchs and matriarchs. But Abraham is, is kind of in a class by himself because of having what, everything he has to leave behind. Yeah. So what I would add to what you said, Jeremy, is that by concluding Magain Avraham, God is the protector of Avraham, is an affirmation that God did give Avraham enough. The um, that, that phrase also comes from, and we're not going to get to it because it's a, such a tremendously rich part, there's so much to say, but the strangest chapter in Genesis is the, the battle of the four kings against the five kings, the battle of the Mesopotamian kings who make the Canaanite kings vassals, and then the Canaanite kings rebel, and then the Mesopotamian kings come and, and wail on them, in the course of which they take back Lot, in the course of which they, they take him as a captive, they bring him to Damascus, and at the course of which Abraham gathers 318 of his henchmen and goes and whomps up on the Mesopotamian kings and, retra- and, and rescues Lot. So the fact that we're talking about captives and war and stuff like that it, 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 we could have talked about that today. Um, there's probably something to something to say about that, but that's where uh, that's where God uh, uh, in in the course of that story, or is it the is it the star blessings? I think maybe both. That, that there's the phrase about that God is the shield of Abraham. All right, we have to leave it there. We've gone on, but we can see that that I think I think the reason why we've gone on is because we just simply want to dive into the world of Torah at uh, at the expense of the rest of the world. The rest of the world is so, so complicated and difficult and challenging. And Torah for us, and talking about it, is a kind of island of of peace within a world. It's island of peace and many, many questions in a world that is uh, very difficult and challenging right now. We want to thank you for watching and thank you for listening and thank you for being loyal commentators and so fans of our Parsha talk, we hope that uh, you enjoy this, and we look forward to seeing you on the next edition. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.